My early parenting journey was a lot of accidentally realizing that I was falling into some patterns that I had witnessed when I was a kid. If they're not listening and you're not going to yell, what do you do instead? (laughs) I'm just going to learn how to do this better. It was life-changing for us. It takes a lifetime to really reprogram and condition yourself to show up in the world differently than what your default was. You're going to figure this out. So don't sell yourself and your kids short. Don't just throw out this thing that you know in your heart of hearts is the right way to be with your kiddo. Just keep working at it. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to season two of Adam Was Mad, a podcast where we discuss all things childhood mental health. I'm your host, Michelle, and each week I speak with a guest who either experienced mental health struggles as a child themselves, is parenting a child who has a mental health diagnosis, or who's a professional in this field. A quick cautionary note, many of our episodes do talk about trauma of various kinds, so listener discretion is advised. Every story is important and valued, and every story reminds us we're not alone out there. You have a village of people who understand exactly what you're going through and who can help. If you're looking to connect more closely with that village, join us on Facebook in the group Your Village by following the link at the top of today's show notes. When you join, enter your email to receive our free monthly resource. Hopefully you'll learn something new, hear something interesting, or truly just be reminded that you're not alone. Without any further ado... Let's get to today's episode. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being with me today. I have with me Anne Kaplan, who is going to share her parenting journey with us. Welcome, Anne. Great to have you. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Of course. Can you tell me a little bit about what your parenting journey looks like in general? Okay. Yeah, sure. So I've got four kids. Uh, My oldest kiddo is 18. He's graduating high school in a few weeks. And um, my youngest is nine. So he's in third grade. And um, let's see, my early parenting journey was definitely a lot of like just accidentally realizing that I was falling into some patterns that I had witnessed when I was a kid and realizing like, oh, (laughs) it takes more than just deciding I don't want to be like my parents to not be like my parents. (laughs) Right. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. So yeah, like in the beginning, I definitely had like this feeling of commitment of like, okay, I'm going to be this kind of parent. I'm going to be really tuned into my kid. We're not going to have screaming and yelling in our house. You know, it's going to be just like harmony central. And then I think all of people who aren't parents always think they would be the best parents. And then you have your kids and it's like life just hits you in the face. (laughs) Right. It's a rude awakening. And I don't, at least in my case, I don't know if I thought, oh, I'm going to be a good parent. I don't think it was anything that I thought about myself. It was much more that I thought like, well, I'm not going to do what I saw done. And so I really thought, well, I just decided I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to be a a different way. (laughs) But, you know, as my oldest kiddo got to be into his, like, he, he didn't even make it to two before I had this realization. He was probably like 18 months old when I was like, this kid is not listening to me. And I 
I might know that I don't want to yell at him or, or spank him or anything, but I don't really know what to do instead. Like, where's like the, where's the vibe that I imagined in my head where I just say, "Uh Oh, we don't, you know, we're not going to do that. And then the kid's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, you know what not to do, but you don't know what to do because if they're not listening and you're not going to yell, what do you do instead? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, what did happen is that even though I said I didn't want to yell or I didn't want to lose my temper and I didn't want to be like aggressive, I totally was doing all those things because that's just what was inside me. That's what had been modeled to me. I didn't know any different. And, but because I knew that I didn't want to be like that, I was being aggressive in ways that then I would feel super shameful about afterwards. Mm. So it was like a double whammy of like doing stuff that I was like really against my moral code. And then also like really just eating a shame burger every night after I put my kids to bed. And so um, that's when the first time when I was like, okay, I'm just going to like learn how to do this better. And, um, we, my husband and I learned about love and logic, which was kind of like my first entry into like parent work and like intentional parenting and like learning about parenting and all this stuff. And, um, and it was like life-changing for us. Um, and then, you know, fast forward four, three kids later, you know, that's, that was a long journey of like learning all this stuff and I'm becoming more and more like versed in it, entrenched in it, really um, having it really be something that it was, I, I used to joke that there was like a five month, five year period where I like slept with a love and logic book on my nightstand. Like, Cause <laughs> it it's like, you book. Have, well, it, it's a good book, but also like, it's totally different than the wiring that most of us have. Yeah. And so in order for us to like rewire our brains or whatever we need like constant accountability we need constant reminders we need you know we need to revisit it over and over again it's never a one and done thing because it no matter how much sense it makes intellectually that's not the wiring that's in your body and in in your being right it's not a reflex yet hey and it takes a lifetime to really reprogram and condition yourself to just show up in the world differently than what your default was right um and then for professionally I became a parent coach because as things just got more and more um I don't know just more and more my like kind of almost like sacred duty on this planet to be the parent that my kids deserved it became really a huge part of myself and I was a, a childbirth educator and a birth doula And my kids were getting older. My clients' kids were getting older. I was feeling more and more questions about parenting and less about that first year of life and more about like, okay, what happens afterwards? Right. And it organically happened that this like thing that's kind of my sacred duty on earth as a mother sort of became also my sacred duty on earth as a professional. And so now I'm raising my kids and also helping my clients heal themselves and raise their kids. That's beautiful. And it reminds me of when I, the day I found out I was pregnant with my oldest, I had been reading, taking charge of your fertility. I had been reading all the pregnancy books. I had been reading everything about, you know, the stages of pregnancy and how your body works, you know, things that they don't teach us in schools here in the U (laughs) S and 
I had been learning and just soaking up. I was like a sponge soaking up all of this information about fertility and pregnancy. And the minute that second line on the stick appeared, I burst into tears. And I said to my husband, I read all the wrong books because it suddenly hit me that I had spent so much time learning about pregnancy and fertility. I had read nothing about actually parenting and becoming a parent and what that was going to look like. And as soon as you you had that realization a lot sooner than most parents, including myself, like I spent my entire pregnancy reading about pregnancy and birth. And it was not until I got home that I realized like, well, now I don't know my ass from my elbow. Like, (laughs) you know, great. What do I do? It's really cool. I could tell you my child was the size of a rutabaga, you know, a couple months ago, but like (laughs) now I didn't even know, like, I felt so stupid, but like, it didn't even occur to me that like, I was going to need to have pads at home after I had the baby. Like no book said that I totally got how the placenta implanted into the uterus. And like, I totally understood like when you have the baby, then you deliver the placenta, but it did not occur to me like, oh, right. But where the placenta used to be now is just a gaping wound. So, uh, (laughs) I literally was like, I didn't know that. And I didn't know that I was going to leak in my breasts. And I, yeah. like, I didn't know. I It's actually honestly comical, the things that I didn't put two and two together. Because like all of it's super logical. And it just didn't didn't spend one second thinking about what's going to happen after they put that baby in my arms. All I could think about was like my eyes on that prize. Right. Having Having the baby. Right. And then, and then they send you home and my husband and I, again, we were driving home. We, we lived, thank God we lived two minutes from the hospital, but I remember sitting in the back seat with the car seat and, you know, my hands on my baby and my husband's driving just ahead of, you know, in the front seat ahead of me. And I said to him, I can't believe they just like gave us this baby and are letting us like, who are we to take on this raising this child? I mean, they just let us walk out of here with a kid. They know nothing about us. Like we didn't have to take a test or anything. (laughs) (laughs) I know I had the same feeling. And I, with uh, my oldest, I had a little bit of postpartum depression, which in the beginning just manifested in me really feeling like kind of disconnected from him. And I just remember being like, this doesn't even feel like my baby. It just feels like my like government issued baby. Like I went to the baby store. I went through like this gauntlet and on the other side, here's your prize. Just like if you ran a race and you get a medal at the end, here's your baby. But it did not feel like Elijah did not feel like he was mine or that he was the same thing that I've been feeling inside of me that whole time or I really had this like almost like cognitive dissonance that, that, that yeah. this baby really part of me at all. And, and unlike me- a medal, you can't just put the baby on the wall and call it a day. <laughs> That's right. And so- especially if you're in postpartum depression, it's a lot of just a series of rude awakenings. I think I remember weeping over Elijah while he was sleeping in his crib and like tears falling onto my sleeping baby it could not be more like poetic and just thinking this is the biggest mistake I've ever made. And it's the only thing I can't undo. Yeah. And, you know, obviously now in retrospect, I can say, oh, you know, postpartum h- hormones and all that stuff. But at the same, at the time it was like, no, this is really bad. This is really bad. Yeah. I, I experienced very similar things. I was having really terrible intrusive thoughts myself 
And so I would sit there, you know, rocking him and holding him. And I would think, what if this tree in our yard fell through the roof of our house and impaled him right in, you know, the chest while I'm sitting here holding him? I mean, just the craziest thoughts, but the idea of something happening to him was just constantly in my mind. And it took a really long time for me to realize that that was postpartum depression. Right. What I think people don't understand is we talk about postpartum depression, but we really should be talking about postpartum mood disorders because it's not always depression. It can be anxiety, like what you were describing. It can even manifest as like almost like compulsive thoughts, like what you're describing. And I have, so I have four kids with two of them. I had postpartum depression or postpartum mood problems. The first one, it was this depression feeling of just like, I have lost myself. I am no, I bear no resemblance to the human I was the, before this kid came into the world. I, I'm a completely adrift. With my fourth kid, I had postpartum anxiety and I would have the thoughts like what you're talking about, Michelle. Like I would be like walking with my son, like over a bridge and I'd be like, what if I just, act, you know, not because I wanted to throw him over the bridge, but it was like, I couldn't stop picturing the stroller going over the bridge. And my intrusive thoughts lasted for like a year and a half and they were so jarring and vivid that my family got used to me like out of the blue going (gasps) because I would have like this startle reflex of like something horrible that just flashed in my mind yeah people don't understand like that's that's your hormones you know you're just strapped into a roller coaster (laughs) yep exactly I remember saying to my therapist at the time I was I was actually afraid that I would drop him while I was having it because it was right. so strong. I was like, it's almost like a hallucination. It's it's not a hallucination, but it's like I'm so zoned out imagining this horrible thing that happens. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, it took a really long time to get past that. Uh, so then by the time your son, you know, you mentioned he got to around 18 months and you're realizing that you know, the, Hey honey, like let's, let's hop in the car now. Time to go. Isn't working. (laughs) You know, what were, were you still having those feelings around that time? And what did you do then to differently? What did you end up doing differently? Well, like I said, one of the very first things I did was just read a book, you know, like I was like, Oh, okay. And I started implementing the stuff that I was learning and it was, it worked like a dream. And that in and of itself gave me a really big sense of empowerment and control and connection with my son. It finally felt like I was doing a thing that was healthy and aligned and he was responding. So now we, we actually felt like we had a, a relationship, like a give and take and a, you know, yeah. each other. And so, you know, that, that was like so helpful for sure. But I mean, it took me a while. So I, then I got pregnant with my second kiddo had my second kiddo. It was a super redemptive birth experience that completely lit a fire in my belly about women's like autonomy and birth rights and all of this stuff. And that's when I became a doula. And I, I felt like after my second birth, I was like, everybody needs to know like this secret that we all don't talk about, which is that birth can be amazing life-changing, tremendous, empowering. You are like, you have this power inside of you that you're just walking around. Like you walk next time, everybody's listening to this podcast, you walk around and you see all the women around you. Just think about each one of those people is walking around with like some incredible, 
like mind blowing power inside of them. They're just walking around, just keeping it to themselves. Nobody acts like we have that power. Nobody sees that power. No one treats us like we have that power. We're just like walking around. Like we have the equivalent of like a, you know, a, a an atomic bomb inside of us in terms of like power and strength and, and awesomeness. And it's just like the best kept secret in the universe that we all have that. And so afterwards I was just like on a crusade um, about birth and motherhood and parenting and just really like taking back everything <laughs> that women that. deserve. <laughs> I love that. And you're right. It is, it is an absolute superpower. Just to be a mother is an absolute superpower, you know, not to mention everything that goes into that, right? Like you have pregnancy. I grew an eyeball in my body. I grew fingernails in my body. You know, I, my body did that amazing thing. And then, oh, look, I gave birth to this child. Like an entire human came out of me and I have three children. And I mean, honestly, we could spend the rest of the podcast just talking about that. that Honestly, was the big lifting of the veil for me was my second birth. Wow. Because i so much more intention and agency to my birth that the experience itself was just a complete redemption. And, you know, so between the fact that I was finally kind of felt like I was getting a handle on this actual, like whole, like disciplining thing with my older son. And then I had this like really positive healing experience with my second kiddo, you know, I was like a different person on the other side of that. It was great. And I I love that. I think it's a big transition for parents. You know, when you first have a baby, they tell you, you know, and they're right to tell you like the baby's in charge. Like we talk about like baby led breastfeeding and, and, you know, infant led latching and, you know, we don't sleep train until much later if we do at all. And we talk about like, if the baby cries, we do everything we can to respond to those cues. And at around like between like five and six to 10 months, a huge cognitive shift happens in our kids that we often don't catch right away, which is that they switch into being able to really understand the, and associate their choices, like the way they behave with, with um, results that they create. You know, if you see a, like a newborn baby, like purposely, like when they play the game, like how many times can I throw my, you know, whatever pacifier on the floor and my mom will pick it up. Like, They're literally playing around and learning cause and effect. And like around that time, there's a paradigm shift that is appropriate to happen between a mom or a parent and a child, which is, okay, you're not actually in charge anymore. Like you're a huge piece of the puzzle, but I'm the leader. I'm the leader now in our relationship. And that's super important for kids. They need a strong level of leadership and control from their parents. And that paradigm shift is it's a, it can be a little bit rocky for a lot of parents and it might, and for some parents, it just doesn't even happen until way later. And those are the parents that I talk to who are like, okay, my three-year-old is like running our family. What do I do? You know, this can't be right. And, and we have to, you know, create that paradigm shift then. Tell me about some of the challenges that you experienced with your kids and how you overcame those. Yeah. Well, one thing that was helpful for me even was 
our pediatrician, like I literally went into our pediatrician's office before I learned about love and logic and everything. I went into our pediatrician's office just for like a well visit with my son. And, you know, I wasn't worried about his health at all. So I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He weighs good, you know, whatever. Let's get to the good stuff. Should I just start spanking him? I literally just asked my doctor, like, should I, can I spank him yet? Is he like old enough to be spanked? And he's like, well, now let's, let's uh, (laughs) pump the brakes on this. And he said, he's like, listen, kids need repetitive, like predictable, consistent experiences to really learn a lesson. So I want you to imagine that your kiddo needs to hear from you like 50 times this thing that you're telling him. And you're giving up at like time 30 because it feels like it's not working. And just even having that encouragement from him of like, don't throw in the towel. Like I didn't really take it super literally that my good parenting would be to just repeat myself like a broken record forever for my kid. What I really took from that was like, don't throw out your like values about parenting just because you haven't figured out how to make it work yet. Like spanking my child was something that I was like dead set committed not to do until I had a kid who made me want to pull my hair out. And then it was like almost my knee jerk reaction was to want to spank him. But like talking to him, it just kind of gave me the encouragement of like, you're going to figure this out. So don't sell yourself and your kid short. Don't just throw out this thing that you know, in your heart of hearts is the right way to be with your kiddo. Just figure, you know, keep, keep working at it. And um, that was like just so helpful to me. And then in terms of like what specific behaviors we struggled with with our young when our kids were young, I mean, of course, every child is so different and it's different for each kid, but well, it's interesting, but I would say like our first and our fourth kid were the ones that were the hardest around sleep. Mm. Um, and our Second kiddo, which is really, I found out later when I started doing this work is very indicative and very common for second kids. He is just the most stubborn person. And when he was a kid or a little kid, he's 16 now, but when he was much younger, oh man, we, it would, he really like gave us a run for our money. And like, by that time we were totally on the a love and logic gravy train and it was working like a dream. And we would get compliments all the time about how like amazingly well-behaved our kids were there really wasn't like screaming and yelling and fighting in our house like it really worked well but river there was he would just find one thing one thing where you just could not figure out how to set a boundary and for him it was staying in his bed Mm -hmm. and most of my clients I say you know it's your kid's choice if they sleep on the floor or not we don't need to like try to force them to be in bed but in river's case he was sharing a bedroom with his older brother and they had bunk beds And River would crawl out of his bed and climb up into the top bunk and like pinch his older brother and like poke him and like make him cry. Or he would like pull go go out of his room. Like, you know, if you baby proof your your kid's bedroom, what does it matter if they sleep in their bed or on the floor, right? Well, River managed to like take baby proofing to a whole new level. Like he really just needed to be like in a padded sensory deprivation. So he would like pull the drawers out of his dressers so that they were like just kind of like slightly ajar. And then he would use them as steps to climb. Oh my up gosh. You know, it's like, I'm up. I'm, I, I'm not a rookie here. This is my second kid. Like I already knew like take, you know, I took hard books out of the room and I, you know, anything that he could hurt himself with or anything like that. He found new ways and we could not figure out how to get him to stay in his bed. And that was like the one 
time where like Mike and once again, Mike and I sat, my husband sat in the living room and, and this had been going on for months where we were using like every love and logic tool we could think of. And I was like, I literally can't think of anything to do except to spank him. Like I literally feel like we've gone down the list of all the things and spanking is the only thing we haven't tried. And Mike was like, okay, well, let's just hang on a second. Let's, let's think about this. Like if we were in the love and logic class, and oh, I, I even emailed the right, the authors of the love and logic books. Wow. Like, do in this case, of course I never got a reply, but what I finally decided was we need like a love and logic boundary and love and logic does not tell you what boundaries to set. One of the reasons why I love love and logic is because it's about like finding your own way and setting your own boundaries. And it's much more about how you deliver consequences and how you enforce your boundaries than it's about what boundaries you set. But in our case, we felt like the boundary needed to be that River needed to stay in his bed. And one of the tools they teach you in love and logic is setting boundary with choice. And so I was like, if we had a way to keep him in his bed physically, we could offer him the choice like tonight, are you going to stay in your bed all by yourself or do you need mommy and daddy to help you stay in your bed? And I was like, okay, so I mean, you know, you're at your wits end. I'm like, uh, we duct tape him to the bed if he gets out. Like, what am I doing? Like, how's, how can we even offer this choice? Cause we can't, we can't help him quote unquote, stay in his bed. We don't have a way to keep him in his bed. And Mike was like, what about his car seat? And I was like, okay. And at first I was like, no, that seems really weird. You know, almost like mean, you know. But then I was like, you know, we go on long car trips all the time. Like we drive through the night. We live in Denver, but we have a house in Michigan. And we drive nonstop from Denver to Michigan every summer. We drive through the night. And um the thing we want the most is for our kids to fall asleep in their car seats so that they will have a restful night and not be, you know, a bear in the morning. And we don't think that either that's damaging to them or that's hurting their necks or, you know, whatever. It's just yeah. sleeping in your seat. So I, I was like, okay, okay. I'm willing to give this a try. And we put his car seat in his bed and we did, we said, okay, River, it's night, night time. I'm so excited for you. You're going to get to sleep in your bed tonight are you going to stay in your bed all by yourself or do you need mommy and daddy to help you stay in your bed? And he's like, Oh, I'm going to stay in bed all by myself. And I'm like, I can't wait to see it. This is going to be amazing. And of course, in like three minutes, he was out of his bed. Of course. It's time instead of arguing with him and getting mad at him and yelling at him and threatening him and all the stuff that we had resorted to, which never worked anyway, we just said, Oh, looks like you need a little help stay in your bed tonight. No problem. And we put him in his car seat. And that was it. I think we ever had to do that like two times, one night, that one night. And then he stayed in his bed. And then I think maybe like two months later, he gave it another try, but it took me like, that's, that is a really extreme example of like, just being totally stumped, you know, and we don't have the option. Like we lived in a small house. We have four children. Like we didn't have an option for him to like be in his own room where he couldn't take all the furniture out of it and just put a mattress on the floor, you know, which is something that I've coached clients. That's what they, the solution they've come up with. And it's a perfectly viable solution. We didn't have that option and we didn't have the option to, to take his big brother and put him some, there were no other rooms. And I think it's a really good hallmark of like, every family is super different. 
And whatever you decide to do, it has to feel okay and aligned to you. So it's not like I was like happy about putting River in his car seat, but I really needed to feel like that it was not a bad thing to do, that that was a, a choice that River was making and that it, that the consequence of his choice wasn't cruel or unusual or harmful or traumatizing or any of that stuff. So I always tell my clients, like a good consequence ticks three benchmarks. One is that it makes sense for the misbehavior. So parents all the time are like, you said something mean to your sister, no TV for a week. Well, what does that have to do with anything? Right. It's not natural. It's not a natural consequence. That's right. So it needs to make sense because the whole point of discipline is to help your kids make the connection between the choice they made and the outcome they created. If you're, they didn't create an outcome if you're just randomly taking screens away or something like that. Right. It's consequence, not punishment. That's right. The second is that it needs to matter to the child. So if your kid doesn't like reading, taking away all of his books is a stupid consequence. It's not going to make a difference at all. Even if the the misbehavior that he did was coloring in a book or right out of a book or something. Um, and then the third is that it has to feel aligned for you. So there are absolutely consequences out there in the world. Like my, I guarantee there are people listening to this podcast being like you put your kid in a car seat and made him sleep in a car seat that's like child abuse and it's not but if it feels like that to you it is absolutely the wrong consequence for you to use it will be a really big disaster and so one of the most important things working with a coach is to know that like your coach is just your coach Sometimes as coaches, oftentimes as coaches, especially as a parent coach, I make suggestions all the time. And I think it's a really great coaching relationship when my clients take my suggestions about 10% of the time. That's amazing. You know, and it reminds me, your car seat story reminds me of my own car seat story. When I was young, my mom was a timeout mom. She was a mom that, you know, put kids in timeout. And I know that, you know, now we have things like time in or, you know, sit on the spot and have a conversation. But my mom was a timeout mom and she put me in my car seat for timeout because I wouldn't stay in timeout. And I learned to rock myself forwards until I was on my hands and knees and then could stand up with the car seat on my back like a turtle shell. (laughs) So it ended up not being a great solution in the end because I just, you know, figured out my way out of it. So I completely understand the whole, the stubbornness and that you have to think outside the box sometimes because. Well, and I think the problem with stub, the problem that arises with stubborn kids is that we get so frustrated with them that we wind up like kind of squelching their, like stubbornness is amazing. It's, it's a superpower. And I can tell you as an older kid, I was about to say an adult, River's not an adult, he's 16. But like as a, you know, a young person, that stubbornness has been like a godsend for him. And I'm so glad that we chose to parent him in a way that fostered his autonomy and everything. You know, even when you're giving this consequence that, you know, it's easy to say like, well, that's not, you know, that's not fostering his autonomy. You're like forcing him to sleep in a car seat that he picked. He chose that. Absolutely. Every time it's, Hey, what's going to help you the best tonight? I will respect whatever you decide every step of the way. We need to be making those 
choices. And I think if we get in a place where we're really trying to like dominate and, um, and win against a stubborn child, we wind up really taking the superpower and having it come out sideways because you, you can't parent the stubbornness out of a child, but you can parent a stubborn child and make them defiant. Right. And right. Because stubbornness is really about, it's not really about not being open to change or something like that. That, that. that can be part of it, but especially in children, stubbornness is much more about like, I know myself and I want to follow what feels right to me. Like it's about autonomy and agency. And so if we parent in a way that negates our kids agency, they'll still have that need for agency, that strong, strong drive. And it comes out as defiance instead of them just having lots of opportunities to be the boss of their life. Yeah. And that self-awareness. I love that. Stubbornness isn't defiance, it's autonomy. So tell me if parents want to learn more, if they want to work with you as a parent coach, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah. So, um, the best way to find me is to just go on my website and there's so many different ways you can work with me. And that's annkaplanparentcoach.com. Um, and the, if you really just want to get like your hands on some of these concepts and see how to implement them and everything, I always encourage everybody to, um, get my free workbook. It's called getting kids to listen the first time. And it really takes like a lot of these concepts of like autonomy and boundaries and consequences and agency and applies them to this universal problem that parents face of finding themselves repeating themselves constantly. Like I was doing with river (laughs) bed. Um, and so, um, you get to actually not only learn the concepts, but actually get some traction on this problem. Um, and if you get the workbook and actually implement the stuff in there, you'll see change within like 24 or 48 hours with your kiddo most of the time. Um, And then the other thing that's kind of a special time of year, I don't usually get to talk about this on podcasts, but every year in October at that Michigan house that I was mentioning, we have this house in Michigan. um, I host a mom's retreat up there. Um, It's right at the peak of the color change. It is magnificent. If you all have never been to that part of the country in the fall, it will take your breath away truly. And the house is on a lake and then we just do so many amazing different modalities. So we do regular coaching, but then we also do a lot of somatic work and some like ritual and ceremony. And we have amazing excursions to local wineries. We all get massages. Like we have a little chef that stays with us. Andrew would be laughing if you heard me describe him as a little chef. our own chef that stays with us and takes care of us. And it is magnificent. So that is another way to get into my world. There are, at the time of this recording, there are four slots left in the retreat in October. So check that out um, too. And uh, yeah, I hope I'll be talking to you soon in one way or another. Oh my gosh. Relaxing and educational. That is right up my alley especially the chef part Mm -hmm. and the massage part and the relaxation part and the on the lake part. That all sounds great. (laughs) Everybody who comes on this retreat, and I'm not exaggerating, like every single person who comes on this retreat has told me that it is life-changing for them. It is, it's truly so profound and so gentle and so nourishing and, and it's designed to be something that you take with you after you go home, not 
just a vacay. You know, it's not that you just get to feel good for five days in my lake house. You get to go home and have like brand new energy and tools and perspective on your parenting for a long, forever, really forever. I love that. Well, Anne, thank you so much for being with me here today. We'll have the links to every one of those things you mentioned, including the Love and Logic book in the show notes. And I hope Mm -hmm. to have you back soon. Sounds good, Michelle. Thanks. That's all for today, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to follow or subscribe and check out today's show notes for free downloadable resources and a link to join your village, our Facebook community. Catch you next time.